Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome John Warrillow. John is founder of five companies and the best-selling author of Built to Sell and The Automatic Customer. John is the founder of the Value Builder System, a cloud-based assessment tool business owners can use to assess the sellability of their company. I thought it was really important to get John on the show, not for companies out there to sell their company but also to get their company into a state that there's better processes and that they can have a better life as a result. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Aiden. It's a pleasure to be here. What I loved about your system and what I loved about your books is it's not just based on theory. It's based on experience. You have sold five companies. You've founded five companies. So it'd be great to start today with telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, I've been involved in a number of startups right now. I run this company of Value Builder, as you mentioned in the intro. Uh, prior to that, uh, I had a quantitative market research business that was uh, acquired in 2008. Uh, it's now part of Gartner Group, a large Fortune 500 company based in the United States. So that's me in a nutshell. So we're going to talk about build to sell today. You tell the story through a fictional character, which is Alex Stapleton, and a mentor, an old friend that he has, which is Ted Gordon. It'd be great to get a bit of context for our audience. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, I think a story that a lot of entrepreneurs see themselves in, or I hope they do. I should say, you know, Alex is a successful business owner. He, it's hypothetical uh, business that uh, generates about a million five in revenue. He makes about one hundred and fifty grand a year in profit. He's got a nice car. He's got a nice life, but it's really stressful because he uh, has a project-based firm where he's always chasing the next project. He starts every month from zero. Cash flow goes in ebbs and flows. And he meets this uh, mentor figure named Ted who gives him some advice and, and has him focus his business on the one thing that he uh, could do better than anybody else. And, and it's a whole kind of story of how that creates a better lifestyle for Alex. And it's, it's really, you know, it's an amalgam of some of my own personal life experiences, along with some of the, the the sage mentors I've had an opportunity to kind of work with over over, over the years. So it's a, it's it's a hypothetical story inspired by some uh, you know some of my own life. Yeah, that's a bit of the backstory. One of the things you you open with one of the business success factors lies in the specialization of a single service. And so many people are desperate for cash or desperate for revenue at the start that they go take in every type of revenue. But you say focus on one type and get known for that. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the first steps to creating a, a better lifestyle in your business is to stop doing as much. Uh, you're absolutely right. In the early days, you kind of take any revenue you can get, right? And 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 that results in a business that's a, that's basically a, a a mile wide and, and only an inch deep in terms of number of customers. So you're you're doing a lot of things. You're offering a lot of services and products to a few customers, and and that's the definition of an unsellable business. Is also one that can be incredibly stressful because when you're doing lots of different things, you can't train employees to deliver. So you end up having this very small business that's that's limited in terms of its size uh, because you just can't hire people because you're doing so many different things. And and the I think that the the killer app, the way you get out of that 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 trap, is to focus actually on one thing that meets what we call the trifecta of scale. Uh, so it's a it's it's a product or service that you're offering that is 
number one, teachable to employees, uh, number two, valuable to customers, and number three, repeatable, meaning customers have to buy it on a regular cadence. And so my, my first step in, in trying to get out of this trap that so many entrepreneurs fall into uh, is to put all of your products and services on a whiteboard and rank them on those three factors. How teachable are they? How valuable are they in the eyes of a customer coming from your business? And then how repeatable are they? Meaning what cadence do the customers repurchase on? And, and really start to focus in on the products and services that score the highest and start to, and, and really stop doing, stop offering the things that have the lowest score. And that's one of the first steps to, to pulling yourself out of this trap. And one of the things you say, it stops employee churn as well. You start specializing on the type of person that you want, and therefore you start putting better job specs together. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing that frustrates employees more than when you as an entrepreneur uh, go around starting to offer more and more and more services, re- reinventing your business model with every customer. I think you know one of the things that makes entrepreneurs really good at what they do is they're constantly innovating, right? Which is what makes us successful. And it's also our Achilles heel. It's what makes us good at starting companies, but not very good at scaling them because we're always going after the next thing. And and if you're an employee of a company like that, it can be exhausting, right? Because every time you turn around, the entrepreneur has changed the business model, they've changed the customer set, they've changed the product, and it can be just exhausting. And so that's why you get a lot of employee churn and just employees who just don't know what to do because they're trying to somehow kind of follow your lead. It's impossible. So again, the things that make us successful at starting businesses can also be the very same qualities that make it very difficult for us to scale. A lot of really successful companies are, you'll find are partnerships um, where there's, you know, look at the Google guys as an example. If you look at even the story of Uber, they were partners in the beginning, right? They were they were working together. There were other people at the table that were acting as a bit of a sounding board tonic, a an auger against the natural tendencies of most of us as entrepreneurs, which is just to continue to innovate, but not focus. You mentioned the trifecta there. So the teachable, the value to the customer, and then it's the repeatable. The teachable bit, just to hone in on this a little bit, is how teachable it is from you as the entrepreneur, as the creator, as the founder, to your staff. So is, is it to salespeople, et cetera? Yeah, it's teachable to your staff. Exactly right. So can you teach your employees to sell and deliver this product or service. So let, let's give you an example. So let's say you own a swimming pool installation company. You, you install swimming pools. You also have a store where you sell the chemicals, the chlorine and so forth. Well, fixing an overheated pump in an engine room of a swimming pool in some guy's backyard is probably a relatively complex service offering uh, that would probably score low on teachability. Going in and measuring the water to see the chlorine levels and the and the the pH levels in the water is a much easier task. So you could probably teach staff to go and take water samples and measure them for the and then up you know uh, add the chemicals that are needed in the swimming pool. And so for a swimming pool company owner, as an example, your your service that is more teachable, valuable, repeatable is likely going to be. You know, a service where every two weeks you go to a swimming pool, to a homeowner who has a swimming pool and rebalance their chemicals for them, as opposed to what is a much more difficult task like installing a swimming pool or installing a new pump for a swimming pool, which is an expertise that's much more difficult to train. Gotcha, John. And you mentioned valuable. So how valuable it is to the client. How does one assess that? For example, you innovator comes up with a great idea. It's a, it's a new market product or a new product in the market. How do they 
judge the value it is it has to the customer? It might be easier to think of it in terms of the opposite of commodity. So you can think about the things that score high on value are not commoditized, right? So they're the ones where you have a unique offering in the marketplace. So you know, like Warren Buffett, the famous investor, talks about investing in companies with a deep and wide competitive moat. In other words, they have competitive differentiation. It allows them to be able to price their product or service at a premium and, and it creates this sort of virtual cycle or, or, or domino effect. And so what you're really trying to do is figure out what products or service is, is the one in which you're really truly differentiated. And differentiation comes in two flavors. Why? One is you've got some sort of IP, some sort of technology that really makes your product innovative or different uh, than its competitors. The other option, much more common, is that you don't have the next greatest mousetrap, but you differentiate based on marketing. You try to make it, the customer perceive that there's some difference in what you're offering. Um, good example. I mean, if you just think about Coca-Cola, you know, you'd be hard pressed to say that that Coca-Cola has developed a unique product that is totally different than the, all the other colas on the marketplace. What they've done is is a really great way, great job of I think differentiating the product over a hundred years, so that it it truly bl- makes it look like it's 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 more uh, different. So. What you need to do is find something where you're a category of one. You're like the only provider, but you're trying to create your own category so that nobody else can say you're in the same category. Um, one of the secrets there is to, is to define your industry. So one of the mistakes we make is talk about being in a similar industry. So we might say, I'm in the market research industry, or I'm an architect, or I'm a business broker. And as soon as you define yourself by your industry, you're all of a sudden lumped in with all the other players in that industry. And that, and that commoditizes you to some extent. So, so we're big believers in not saying you're part of XYZ industry as a way to describe yourself. Instead, saying, look, you know, to go back to my swimming pool example, you know, we've got the 30-day the hassle-free swimming pool solution. That's what we do, and we're the only game in town. So if you name what you do, brand it as something you own, then you can claim category exclusivity or, or that you're a category one, which is what we call monopoly control. The last one then is repeatable. So it's repeatable in that it's not a, just a one-off sell that you come back and the client needs more and more of your work, but also is it that the product becomes templateable so that you can survive beyond you as the founder or as the entrepreneur? No, repeatable refers to the, the buying cadence of the customer. Something would score very low on repeatability would be, you know, a wedding ring, coffin, any anything that you only ever need once, right? So that's going to score very low on repeatability. The best businesses are ones where the where the customer has to purchase on a regular cadence, right? Like so, classic example is the razor blade business. So Dollar Shave Club is an example. Dollar Shave Club recently sold to Unilever for more than a billion dollars, two hundred million dollars in revenue, five times top line revenue. Um, why do they get such a, a high multiple? Well, because they've got a recurring revenue model. So um, repeatability is is less about. It's not, it's not about how easy it is for you to replicate the model. It is everything to do with how frequently and how regularly the customer needs the product. I mean, I'll give you a business-to-business example of repeatability. It comes from HP, the guys who sell printers. So they have uh, HP inkjets, uh, ink subscriptions now, where there's a little sensor in their new printers 
that measures how much ink you have left. And when it dips below a certain point, if you're a subscriber to HP uh, uh, Ink, they will automatically auto ship you more ink. So as an office, you go through printer ink and it automatically ships it when you need it. That's a business to business example. The, The Dollar Shave Club would be a business to consumer example where you obviously always need razor blades. But what you're looking for is that regular purchase cadence. You talk about six most common forms of repeatable business. It'd be great to talk about them for a moment. Mm, yeah, sure. So, I mean, what we've seen at Value Builder is that acquirers will value recurring revenue in different ways based on how locked in the customer is. So, you know, at the bottom of that hierarchy, the, the least valuable form of recurring revenue in the eyes of an acquirer would simply be what we call consumables revenue, right? So, example might be toothpaste, right? Like we all brush our teeth in the morning, you run out of toothpaste every three, four weeks. And so you need to buy more toothpaste. So that's, you're not locked into buying any one brand, but you do need toothpaste on a regular basis. Um, One up from that would be sunk money consumables where a customer makes an investment in in a platform, right? So uh, to go back to Dollar Shave Club, you know, one of the reasons Gillette was susceptible to competition from Dollar Shave Club is because they kept changing the handle on their razors, right? So every time you go down to Walgreens to buy new razor blades, Gillette had gone and changed the razor handle. And so you had to buy a whole new razor and it just pissed off so many customers that Dollar Shave Club had an opening uh, that I, I believe would never have been there had they not kept changing the handle. But anyways, once you make an investment in a platform like HP, the printer example, once you invest in a in a piece of hardware, it makes you more likely to buy the, the compatible parts. And so in a sunk money consumables model, you've sunk money into a system and then that makes you stickier. Um, and then it goes all the way up. Uh, the, the number one most uh, valuable form of recurring revenue in the eyes of an acquirer would be contract revenue, multi-year contract revenue, where you where a customer has contractually you know, is contractually obligated to buy from your business for a period of multiple years, that all but guarantees the recurring revenue in the future. So anyways, acquirers look at recurring revenue through this lens of this hierarchy of, uh, of forms. But suffice to say, regardless of the form, the more recurring revenue, the better. You talk then as well about the need to diversify your client base as well. And this, I thought this was a really important one. It'd be great to talk, tell our audience about that. Sure. So to go back to the way a lot of businesses start, um, they start based on on serving a few customers. And the more they do well in serving customers, you know, new entrepreneurs are all full of piss and vinegar and energy and excitement. It makes them great salespeople, right? So when they when uh, when the other side, when customers see that, they start to become loyal to that entrepreneur. And so over time, they start to sell lots of things to a few customers. And customers, when they see a, a great support, supplier with tons of energy, they, for their part, start to ask the business owner to supply more and more products and services. And so after a year or two, the business is is a mile wide in terms of products and services and has just a few clients or customers. And, and if you think about the definition of an unsellable or inval- unvaluable company, it's, it would be someone who's got lots of different products and services that they sell to just a few customers. In part, because acquirers, when they look at a business, um, 
you know, when they see that your revenue is dependent on just a few clients or customers, they're going to walk. They're going to say, this, this, this business is way too dependent. It's too susceptible to any one of those customers leaving. And so the more valuable companies do the exact opposite. They, they winnow down using teachable, valuable, repeatable, TBR. They winnow down the number of services or products they offer, and they go out and find more people to offer that. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're focused on finding more customers. I'll give you, give me an example. Stephanie Breedlove, uh, ran a company called Breedlove and Associates. What they did was, um, payroll for nannies. So payroll services where you pay employees, usually likes of ADP and, and the large payroll providers, paychecks, uh, for example, will focus on, on larger clients. So they're looking at land General Motors or SAP or Ford or whatever. And what Breedlove realized, what, there was this little niche available to help parents who want to pay their nanny legitimately by offering a payroll service. And so it was a sleepy little corner of the market. She built it to about $300,000 in annual sales, her and one employee. And she reached a, a fork in the road where she had to figure out what to do next. You know, she could do what everybody was telling her to do, which was to cross sell, right? Like every business pundit on the, on the planet says it's eight times faster and easier to sell more stuff to your existing customers. And so what she could have done was say, okay, I've got customers who are busy parents that have a, you know, have a child. So what else do busy parents need? Well, they need snow removal services if they live in the Northeast, if they, you know, they need lawn care in the summertime, et cetera. Or she could do the much harder thing, which takes incredible discipline. She could go find more parents who have kids that need to get, or who have more parents who have a nanny and focus on the one thing that she did, did better than anybody else, which is payroll for nannies. And, and make take the much harder uh, road or path and just focus on payroll for nannies and go out and find more people to, that, that had nannies to pay. Well, long story short, she chose the latter route, not to cross sell, but to go find more people to, to, to stick with one product or service and just to go find more people to sell it to. She ended up selling her her business and I'm going by memory. Uh, it, it was at the time of the acquisition. Stephanie was doing I think about nine million dollars in revenue, um, top line revenue. She sold it for forty five million dollars, which is if you know anything about business valuation, just an astronomical, off the charts, ridiculous unbelievable multiple, five times top line revenue. We're used to, in the valuation game, talking about multiples of EBITDA, multiples of profit. She's getting five times top line revenue. And again, you know, one of the, the, the lessons here is the discipline it takes to sell one thing. And so one, if I can leave you with one sort of idea, most companies start out with selling lots of things to a few people. And what the most valuable companies is exactly the opposite. They're selling a few things to lots of people. And there's another thing you talk about, John, which is you talk about getting trapped by one customer, but also the owner, the entrepreneur, you, for example, getting trapped as the only person people want to deal with. Yeah, I mean it's it's a classic, right? So if the business is too dependent on the owner, uh, then it generally it falls into what we call the owner's trap, where there are no more hours in the day that the business can work, and so it'll happen at eight hundred thousand dollars in revenue or two million dollars in revenue. But eventually, what happens is the business stalls, and it stalls because it's too dependent on the owner, and they and they simply can't 
uh, work any more hours. And so one of the telltale signs you're in the owner's trap is that your revenue has flatlined. It's just plateaued. Despite a great economy, despite you know low interest rates, you just can't grow top line revenue. And that's often um, a telltale sign that you've slipped into the owner's trap. And again, the, the, the way out of that trap is, is, to, is to TVR your business, teachable, valuable, repeatable. Stop selling something that, that is causing you to, to get sucked into the delivery or the sales of, of whatever it is you do. And you say then business owners experience a much better lifestyle as a result of this standardization. Well, absolutely right. I mean, again, if the goal is how do I get this thing to run without me, uh, as the ultimate goal. Once you do that, we call it an options strategy. Uh, not an option strategy, but an options plural. Once you've got a business that does not rely on you personally, you've got the ultimate poker hand, right? So so you could continue to run the business, cherry pick the, the fun projects that you want to dig into, uh, but, but not really get marred in the minutia and the details of running it. A. B, uh, you could do a minority recapitalization of the company where you sell a little chunk of the business to a private equity group. You could sell it outright. Uh, you could bring in a management team. You could bring in a, a president and CEO and kick yourself up to the chairman's seat and, and just you know just handle, so be, be, a, be sort of an investor in the business as opposed to an operator. I mean, you've got all those options available to you. And I think what what my experience in working with a lot of entrepreneurs is is they 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 want control. They want options. They they don't want anyone else telling them what to do, right? Like there's a reason entrepreneurs don't go to work for General Motors or Procter and Gamble. I mean, they've they've opted out of becoming a fireman, a policeman, a nurse. Like they've chosen not to take those occupations. Why? Well, in some cases, it's because they're just wired differently. Uh, they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. And so if that's where you're at, um, and you just you bristle under under people telling you what to do, then then entrepreneurship can be a, a, a great career choice. Um, but it really comes down to can you set your business up so that it's not dependent on you personally. And one of the things there you mentioned is is this management team. And I loved what you said in the book, making the management team synonymous with the company rather than you being synonymous with the company. Yeah, I mean, really. It all comes down to the same idea, which is how do you show a buyer that your company would thrive without you? And and one of the ways you can do that is through having a management team, right? So you can you can hand on your heart, look at the acquirer, and say, look, when I leave, when you write a big check to get you know to buy my business, and I choose to leave. I'm, you're in good hands because you've got this team of managers here. And again, whether you want to sell your business or not, it, it, it helps you because those are the te- that, you know, that's the team that's going to help you execute. But it, to go back to something we talked about earlier, it's, it's difficult for a lot of us to, 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 to do this effectively, again, because we have shiny ball syndrome, right? Because we're chasing the next uh, shiny object. And, and professional managers don't like that, right? Professional managers would much prefer to have a, a, you know, a strategy, a single product or service, and, and, and really execute against that rather than change the business model based on what side of the bed the entrepreneur woke up on. You say about long-term incentives. So I love this because this is something a lot of entrepreneurs don't know. How do I incentivize this team to first come to join me, but then to stay with me for a longer period of time so that I can get to an option to sell the company. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, business owners, um, they want partners to go through the journey with, right? Like entrepreneurship can be a very lonely experience. I mean, there's no one to go to, no one, no boss, no one to turn to for advice or counsel or shoulder to cry on. And as a result, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially new and young entrepreneurs, will by by kind of knee jerk reaction want to share equity with their employees, right? They're, oh, I got to share lots of equity. I got to give everybody options. We're all in this together. Three musketeers. We're kind of going to go forward together, and and I think that's a mistake for in in many businesses. You know, and primarily, you know, there's a very small number of businesses that are really structured to to have liquidity events in a traditional way. So a very small number of businesses are going to go public, or or, or have these fantastic exits. And so as a result, you're giving options to business owners or, or to your employees that really have little value. You know, maybe you'll sell one day down the road, but really there's very little value. There's no control. And so, you know, I think just giving options or, uh, or providing equity to your employees almost as a knee jerk for wanting, uh, you know, friends around the table, I think is a mistake. I think, uh, you know, there's other ways to do that. Certainly, if you've got a technology business um, and you've got a clear path to exit, sharing equity with key people can be important. But there's other ways. One, one's a long-term incentive plan where you simply basically take a portion of uh, somebody's bonus or choose to perhaps replicate their bonus in a long-term incentive plan, which basically means that they can't access it for a period of time, usually three years. And then, and then when they do uh, draw it down that that long term incentive plan. They can only do so one third of the total each year. So at any one given time, if they're thinking of leaving your company, they're going to be walking away from a large chunk of deferred compensation. And so that's just a uh, a model called long term incentive plan. You, you can uh, you can use deferred compensation plans. There's insurance. You know, there's lots of different ways you can fund it. Um, but what you really want to do is. Is, is lock in people as much as you can. But I think it's a mistake just to think the only way to lock people in is through options or stock options. There's, there's lots of other ways to do it without sharing equity. And that seems to be what's synonymous with startups. This is what people tend to go. They want skin in the game. So they join a startup expecting this. But what I love in the book is that you challenge that thinking. And I hadn't seen that before. So was, I thought it was a really important thing to share. But I'd love to get back to some of the practicalities. And I think you know, this is why ValueBuilderSystem.com is so such a great tool. You, you talk even about basics that a lot of entrepreneurs overlook because, again, the shiny new thing syndrome. And one of the things was creating a cash flow cycle. It'd be great to get your thoughts on that. Well, sure. So, uh, you know, one of the eight key drivers of company value we look at at Value Builder is, is, is do you have a positive cash flow cycle? And the reason for that is it comes down to when a buyer buys your business, they've actually got to write two checks. We think of the one check, you know, we get as, as entrepreneurs for a lifetime of, of hard work, but there's actually a second check the business owner writes. And the second check is, is actually written to your company and it's designed to fund your working capital. In other words, how much cash needs to be in the business to meet its immediate obligations when you hand the keys to the new buyer. And what we forget is that both of those checks are drawn on the same bank account. And so the bigger the check they've got to write for working capital, because you've got a negative cash flow cycle, for example, the smaller the check they're willing to write for you. 
as the owner. The inverse is true. If, if, if they don't need to inject any working capital into your business because you've just got a positive cash flow cycle, well, then the bigger the check they're willing to write you. So thinking through what your cash flow cycle is, how you get paid, and how you can start to make your company sort of into an ATM, a you know, bank machine where you're just spitting out cash. And here, I want to draw the distinction between um, you know, um, profit on a profit and loss statement, which is one thing. But here, I'm really talking about cash. I mean, money in the bank. So looking for ways to get businesses or get customers to pay earlier, sooner, delay payments to suppliers if it won't affect your relationship with them. But really, you want to create some positive cash flow so that an acquirer doesn't have to inject a lot of working capital when they buy your business. Brilliant, John. It really reminded me of somebody trying to buy a house and they're trying to get their bank account in an order where they're showing that they're viable, they're going to be okay to pay their mortgage down the whole time. It it really felt like this. And one of the things you talked about to be attractive to an acquirer is that the language needs to change. It'd be great to get your thoughts on that. You know, acquirers get pitched businesses to buy, as you might imagine, thousands of them in a year. And so in the very early uh, days, they are making very superficial judgments about your company. They're going to make very, very superficial sort of passes at your business to see if it's someone or something that they'd want to buy. And if they get a whiff that your business is not scalable or, for example, too dependent on you or as a service business without a lot of assets, uh, they can quickly pass on a very superficial read. So, what, how does this impact the way you think about your business? Well, one thing, you know, there's a, there's, there is a, uh, a set of words that can communicate that you're a service business. And service businesses are difficult to acquire because, again, there's, there's oftentimes dependent on the people in the business. Uh, there are oftentimes no recurring revenue. And so any of the, the, the lexicon of the service business. So, for example, a lot of service businesses call their customers, clients. And so if you go to your website and, 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 and you can read clients all over it, that's going to telegraph to an acquirer that you're a professional services firm. That's the way you think. But a subtle change to the word customers uh, probably won't affect the way your customers think about your business, but it can just suggest it's more the, 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 the vernacular, the lexicon of a product-based business. And again, these may sound like superficial tweaks, but if you're looking at, if you're taking 30 seconds to evaluate a company to buy and you see the word clients or engagements or any of the classic words used in the professional services industry, um, you may pass thinking it's just a bunch of people. And and again, we could argue back and forth as to whether that's right or, or that the value inherent within professional service businesses, it's somewhat moot. If the buyer walks because they view you as a service business, then you lose. So I would scrub my external communication for anything that reeks of a service business. Because again, that's playing with one hand tied behind your back. This segues nicely with your sales team. So you say after a certain period of time, after a certain stage of growth, you won't need the operations team or the, you know, for example, if you're building software, you won't need that team in its entirety anymore. And you say you should actually move to hiring some salespeople. But what I loved here is that you say hire two salespeople and for them to sell not services, but be selling products. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the classic thing is is that business owners go through this evolution, right? So in the beginning, uh, they are the rainmaker most often. They are the one who does all the selling for the company. And then at some point, they're like, I got, you know, I've got to scale this business. I've got to get it less dependent on me. I'm going to hire my first salesperson. And, and, and if you can afford it, if you can, f- you know, find the money to, to hire two, I think it helps you tremendously because, it, you know, if you hire one, one salesperson, uh, it, it's very likely that they're going to hold you hostage, right? You've got a new business. You don't have a proven business model. You can't look them in the eye and say, other people have sold this. And so as a result, when things get tough, the, the salesperson is going to turn around and say, look, you know, the, I can't sell this. The product's wrong. The, the pricing's bad. The, you know, the service offering, it, it doesn't work. You know, I can't sell. They're going to blame everybody but themselves uh, for what went wrong. Whereas if you've got two, and one is successful, one isn't, automatically you create tension and you can automatically turn to the person who's not being successful and say, look, it, it must be something you're doing because if you look at your counterpart, they are being successful and they're using the same product, same service offering, et cetera. So I'm a big fan is, is waiting and hiring two salespeople at a minimum. Obviously, it's best to have a sales team of as many people as you can afford. Uh, but if you go from just one, you may find that it's actually detrimental. You may get sort of held hostage by them, uh, and, and it may actually be harder to scale up. So, so I would wait until you can hire two. This is a kind of an off-the-beaten-track question, but what kind of attributes have you seen that make great salespeople? Well, competitive drive is is one, and empathy is another. So uh, there was a great Harvard Business Review uh, story. It goes back years now, even decades. But what it did was it looked at the most successful salespeople, and they have two almost competing attributes. Uh, they have high ego drive, meaning will to win, competitive drive, need to succeed. Number two, high empathy. And those two things are very rarely found in the same person. And when you find them in the same person, you need to hire that person because they are very rare, but very valuable. For example, there are lots of people out there that are high ego drive, but they come, you can see them coming a mile away and customers avoid them because they know they're going to get sold something, right? So when you, when you get a sense that a, a salesperson is just out for themselves to make quota, that's going to be a problem. They're not going to be effective. Likewise, we all know people are high empathy, right? They can listen to your story all day long. They can ask great questions and they can say, oh, isn't that terrible? What a, you know, like, And they'll spend hours talking to you, but they don't have the ego drive to, to, to actually um, push down their empathy need or, or empathy offer and, and, and actually close a sale. And so they'll have great conversations with clients, but the client will never buy where the customer will never buy. And so what you need is someone with enough ego drive to overcome the empathy when the empathy starts overwhelming the conversation. So it's it's a rare combination, uh, but I found that when you find people with both, they can be quite valuable. Brilliant advice, John. And one of the things coming back to this is when you do specialize in a revenue stream, or like you said, with the nanny payment system, and maybe you did have a number of services beforehand or a number of products beforehand, that you will see a dry up in your revenue. And how do you manage that? Because I'm sure so many entrepreneurs and CEOs are going to be cash strapped. And when they see that drying up, they start to panic. And it makes sense, right? In the early days, you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of cash. You're basically taking whatever revenue you can get. And and it's the it's the it's the worst trap to fall into. So a couple of things you can do. Number one, try charging up front. Um, 
you know, in our business, my last company, we were a research company. We used to be in a, we used to be in a client service model where there were project-based revenue, where we do a project, we'd send an invoice at the end. It's a typical service company. And we made a switch to being a subscription-based company where we would supply research on a syndicated basis. And we charged about $40,000 for a subscription to this very specialized set of research. Now, what we did was charged up front. So on our profit and loss statement, you would see, uh, you know, 12 installations, if you want, one monthly installation for each of $40,000 over a year. So we take $40,000 that we sold the, the, the subscription for and divide it by 12. So each month we, we took in uh, about, th- you know, $3,500, $3,800 of revenue. Yet we charged up front. So we got all $40,000 of cash up front. So if you're in that situation where, you're worried that if you make the switch, you specialize. You're going. You're not going to have enough cash flow to to sort of you know get across as Jeffrey Moore talks about the chasm. If you can actually get across to the to 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 being fully a TVR business, then then look at charging up front. The other thing you can do is form a partnership with someone who does want that crappy service or product that you're trying to get out of. And so what you can do is, is basically get a, a licensing fee or, or a, a, a revenue stream off of uh, basically referring that revenue out. So let's say you you decide that you want your TVR business is going to be widgets and you're going to basically get out of the grommets business. Well, you can go find someone in the grommets business today and say, look, if I send you all my grommets customers, why don't you give me 10% off the top? And I'll do that for the next three years. That can give you some cash and participation, enough money to make you feel like you're getting something from all those instead of just walking away from that revenue. But at the same time, um, you're, you're able to specialize. So you're at this stage, you've done all this, you follow the value builder system, you've gone through your eight steps, you've created your manuals, you've processized and standardized everything within the company. The next step you talk about is a, finding a broker or, or boutique M&A firm depending on the size of your company, of course. How do we go about that? Yeah, so we can help you find one. Uh, we would connect all of our folks who use Value Builder to one. So that's one. The other way to think about it is is to, to ask people who have sold companies. So approach business owners that are hopefully in a similar industry or a similar size and, and ask yourself who they use to, to sell. Brokers and M&A professionals, the distinction generally is the size of companies they sell. So M&A professionals, uh, corporate finance professionals in the UK or investment bankers for much larger companies, they are really focused on, on larger businesses. An M&A professional will look at really selling companies with generally at least $10 million of enterprise value. Businesses that are smaller than that in terms of enterprise value will, will often be uh, served best by a business broker or what they call a quality Main Street business broker, which would be um, kind of somewhere between an M&A professional and business broker. But really, you, you need some representation. Um, in my experience, trying to sell your own business personally is just a, a recipe for getting taken advantage of. You know, the, the other side of the equation, the, the negotiation table, you know, th- there is a private equity group or corporate buyer who is a mercenary, right? Like, um, you know, you think face paint, AR-15 in their hands, like they want to take advantage of the other side, right? They are, they are trained assassins. They, they go after small businesses who are naive about the value of their company and they use dirty tricks um, and, and hidden ploys to buy businesses for m- much less than they're worth. And so if, if, if on the other side, you've got a mercenary, you've got, you can't, you know, to use an old expression, bring a knife to a gunfight. You need to be, uh, you know, lawyered up, 
brokered up and, and, and be defended. And so I believe you need to have somebody, um, at, at, you know, running point for you to, to protect you against these people. So, uh, so yeah, I, I would definitely want, uh, recommend hiring, uh, an intermediary. And you give some brilliant advice in Build to Sell and on Value Builder. And you talk about beware of a broker, for example, who has a buyer in mind already. What other triggers should we be looking for? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a classic uh, trap that you, you want to avoid. Basically, you know, when an M&A professional or business broker, uh, they'll make money on both the buy side and the sell side. So uh, buy side means when they're buying companies on behalf of another company. So for example, um, Google would have a whole group of buy-side corporate development people who are going out and buying companies on behalf of Google. Amazon would be the same. Any big company would have buy-side M&A professionals. So oftentimes, they'd be in-house. Sell-side is people who sell companies for a living, right? And in some cases, a broker will do both. And what, what you want to avoid is a situation uh, where a bo- broker or an M&A professional has a buy-side mandate, mean, meaning they've been hired to go out and buy companies just like yours. And, and you think, uh, because they've approached you, that, that they're working for you. And, and in actual fact, they're working for the, 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 the buyer. And so you just want to be totally candid and transparent. Ask them, you know, do they have any sell side, excuse me, buy side mandates? If so, from what companies and under what specs? So just you're clear and transparent that they are working for you as opposed to for some, you know, buy side mandate. One of the brilliant ones I thought was, you know, you raised the question of, when do you tell the management team? When do you bring them into the the idea that you might be selling the business or you may be thinking of selling some equity, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, the temptation again for a lot of business owners is to, to tell them early because otherwise it feels like you're a cheating spouse, right? You've got this giant secret you're walking around the office with or the factory plant or the floor. Uh, these are people that have brought you to the dance. They're, they're, they're uh, you know, very loyal to you and you feel loyal to them. And so kind of walking around with this giant secret, like you're thinking of selling or you've gotten a letter of intent from a buyer, it, it just, it feels very uh, duplicitous and, and, and very difficult. The challenge, however, is if you start telling employees, um, it can be very disruptive, right? So employees can leave, they can become paralyzed with fear that their job is going to be uh, gotten rid of. And and unfortunately, it's, it's actually not fair to employees. If you look at some of the statistics, it's actually a very small number of companies that sell, even after they've received an expression of interest. You know, the sale process, you get some sort of expression of interest from a buyer. You, you might then go through a, a series of management meetings. You might then get a non-binding letter of intent. Um, you might then go through a whole period of 30, 60, 90 days of due diligence. And then there'd be a closing period where they actually, you know, the deal gets closed. And at each milestone, there's drop-off, Right. Uh, so some brokers and M&A professionals will claim that that the drop-off between letter of intent and closing a deal is somewhere in the neighborhood of a third to a half of all deals. So even if you got a letter of intent, which a lot of business owners think is basically the deal is done, basically it's just a matter of you know dotting the I's, crossing the T's at that point, still a third to a half of those letters of intent never go anywhere, right? So if you're telling your employees you know, once you've got a letter of intent or, or even before that, uh, the, the chances of it being falling apart and, and, and either 
being held hostage by employees or just losing employees is very, very high. And so I don't think it's fair to your business nor to your employees to go around telling them until you actually have the check cleared in the bank. And again, that means that you're going to have to hold your nose um, and, and, and really walk around as if nothing's changed. But I believe it's the fairest to both your business, to you personally as the entrepreneur who's taken this risk, but even to the employees who in many cases you know, will we'll, we'll fly off into a direction that you don't want them to unnecessarily if, if they know you're thinking of selling. That's fantastic advice. And so one of these questions that come up the whole time, people keep asking me, I'm not as qualified as you to answer this question, is the question of an earnout. It'd be great to hear from you, John, what that is and what the challenges are to an earnout. Well, let me give you some backstory, the background. So when a buyer buys a business, they want to pay as little upfront for that business as possible to, to mitigate their risk. When a seller sells their business, they want all cash, right? Oftentimes, they're, they're not aligned, right? And a way that, that oftentimes an M&A professional will bridge the gap, try to get seller and buyer on the same page is through an earnout. And an earnout is simply a mechanism by which the seller will receive additional compensation for their business if in the future, they reach some future goals as a division of the buyer's company. So, it's an at-risk payment, meaning it's not guaranteed generally. And it's usually tied to uh, things like EBITDA or pre-tax profit of the division of the, your, you know, your, your legacy company as a, as a division of a, of a bigger company. It could be tied to revenue, retention of a specific client, for example. All these things are, are different ways that, that earnouts are structured. But the thing to remember is that it's at risk, meaning it's not guaranteed. And there's, there's all sorts of ways buyers uh, can manipulate your numbers uh, to to basically ensure that you don't meet your earnout, no matter how successful you are. And so my suggestion to anyone selling a company is to make sure that on the surface, you're happy with whatever cash you get up front. If that's all you ever get for your company, that you're at least satisfied with that. You maybe not be thrilled with that, but you're satisfied. And that way, the earnout piece is is gravy. Again, there's just so many things that that the buyer, so many levers the buyer, an unscrupulous buyer could pull in order to ensure you don't hit your earnout. And you may say, but I like these guys. I, you know, I know them. I've I've broken bread with them. I know their kids' name. I know I feel like I know them. Remember that things change. Those people, as soon as the deal is done, will go on to the next deal and you'll be inheriting a new management team, other people that you maybe don't know as well that will be your boss. Uh, number two, your acquirer could get acquired itself. And that's not something that a lot of people think about. Uh, but you know, we just—I just interviewed a guy uh, who sold his company to LinkedIn, and 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 sure enough, it, you know, he thought LinkedIn. This is a massive company. It's going to be a great, you know, a great earnout. Sure enough, about six months after he sold to LinkedIn, Microsoft bought LinkedIn, and now he's reporting to some regional manager. who reports to some general manager. Who reports to some senior vice president in Redmond who has no idea what he does, right? Uh, and so. That all happens, right? And it, it happens during an earnout. So, uh, kind of, the, I think the, the sage advice is uh, number one: make sure you're happy with your downstroke, meaning that the, the payment you get up front, cash guaranteed, uh, and treat the earnout as gravy. Number two: 
you know, have acceleration clauses in your earnout in the event that your acquire itself gets acquired, that you can accelerate the earnout payment, uh, that you've got provisions to do that. I'm not a lawyer, so you're going to want a lawyer to paper all the stuff. Uh, but essentially, you're protecting yourself in, in the event that uh, they get acquired. And um, and the other kind of sage advice, I think, is to try to tie the earnout to top line revenue. Generally speaking, top line revenue is something you can control better than profit. Profit is something the buyer they're gonna they're gonna put their accounting team on the on the business. They're gonna they're gonna basically graft their expense model onto your business, and it, it just may be difficult for you to control your EBITDA, your profit. Um, but you can generally control to some extent your sales, or more easily control your sales. So if you could tie your earnout to revenue as opposed to profit, that's probably another you know the good good best practice. Brilliant, John. John Warlow, author of Built to Sell, the Built to Sell podcast, the automatic customer and founder of the Valuebuilder system. Thanks for joining us. Aiden, thanks very much.